Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am Assistant Professor of Religion at University of Southern California at Bonsef and the New Books Network host in the Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Ralph Craig from uh, Dartmouth College to talk with us about her, his new book, Dancing in My Dreams, a spiritual biography of Tina Turner. This is published by Edmunds Price in the Library of Religious Biographies um, series. So, Professor Ralph Craig, Ralph H. Craig III, received his PhD in religious studies from Stanford University where he specialized in Buddhist studies and American religions. His dissertation explored medieval representations of Buddhist preachers across South Asian Buddhist literature. He is currently teaching courses in Buddhist studies and African-American religion at Dartmouth College. So welcome, Rolf. Thank you for writing this engaging biography of such a powerful and inspiring figure. It's both very readable for the general public and thoroughly researched. Is this amazing combination of a trade book and academic monograph. Content-wise, most of us at least know about Tina Turner as an amazing performer, a phenomenal dancer and singer, and also a creative artist. This is the young face of her. But Ralph, your biography reveals to us the lesser known in face of her, that is, her spirituality that sustained and nurtured her young face as an artist. Without her spirituality, Tina Turner would not be become who she was. So while I'm reading it, this is purely for listeners familiar with Buddhist legend. I kept feeling that Tina was a modern-day Kisagatami, who likewise endured so much hardship in life, but gained spiritual awakening despite the sufferings, and became a successful Buddhist teacher and helped many others to end their own sufferings. But then Tina's music talent reminds me of another early Buddhist nun, Ampabadi, um, the famous imperial consort who turned into one of the first Buddhist nuns and who used the love tunes to sing the joy of Dhamma. And there's just so many resonances of notable Buddhist women throughout history. It's just, it just gives me such joy, such chill to read this spiritual biography. So Ralph, I'd like to start our interview with the Tradition New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself and how and why you came to write this biography? I mean, it's very unconventional, right? Your PhD is all about medieval South Asian Buddhist preachers, but then you also are so well versed in music and contemporary American religions. So what draws you to this project and how did you manage to do both, right? Writing this book and doing your PhD, what's your secret? Thank you so much, uh, Jessica. I'm very happy to be here on the New Books Network uh, to talk about this book. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it was an environment where there were many different religious traditions. Uh, there was the practice of Islam. There was uh, Black Catholics and you know, Catholicism. There were, uh, I knew, uh, African-American Jewish people, um, Buddhist communities, and so on and so forth. So I've, in a sense, always been attuned to what Anthony B. Penn called the religious pluralism that marks uh, African-American 
lives. So on that side, you know, I, it was always uh, something that I was interested in. Um, at the same time, as I became interested in Buddhism and, and studying Buddhism and learning about Buddhism, both as traditions of practice, but also as an academic field of study, I repeatedly encountered, this is once I left New Orleans, Louisiana, I repeatedly encountered the idea that Buddhism, particularly in the United States, is white, uh, is predominantly white. And that did not accord with my actual experience. Most of the Buddhist practitioners that I had met were people of color, uh, primarily uh, Asian and Asian American, as well as African-American and other communities. So it became clear to me that something was missing, right? Something was happening between the study of Buddhism, right, as an academic discipline, and particularly the study of, of the history of Buddhism in the United States, and what was actually happening on the ground, um, right, that there was this gap. So I became both interested in the study of Buddhism and Buddhist studies, but also the, histo the historiography of Buddhism, right, how Buddhism has been studied. Uh, by others. And so that led me to my interest in religious authority and the transmission of religious traditions, right? That's how I got to this. And Tina Turner is then read in that context as a Buddhist preacher, as a figure of religious authority. So my work on pre-modern South Asian Buddhist preachers helped me to locate and contextualize Tina Turner's right, religious authority and her place in Buddhist traditions. But my study of Tina Turner as a religious authority figure, as a Black Buddhist teacher, then provided context for the, the long echo of ex Buddhist expectations for what a religious authority figure would be. And so one influenced the other. How did I manage to do both projects, both my dissertation on, on uh, pre-modern South Asian Buddhist preachers in Mahayana Buddhist Sutras and this book on Tina Turner? I, my reading practice was to always be doing both. That is to essentially in the mornings work on translation and you know, reading for my dissertation, right? That is primary sources and secondary literature. And then in the afternoon to work on this uh, book on Tina Turner, allowing each project to influence what I was seeing in the other. Um, the more practical, I guess, aspect of that is having a very careful solid work plan. Um, that is, I know how best I work. I know how, I know what conditions I need to produce uh, a lot of work. And I don't push past the point of diminishing returns. So that works out to be about four hours, four to five hours of work a day. That's, that's the sweet spot for me. Dissertating PhD students, you know, try to learn from this wisdom. 
Thank you so much, Ralph, for sharing with us. So your book has a very short、uh, introduction and epilogue, and six chapters arranged more or less chronologically. For the purpose of this channel, is a Buddhist studies channel, so I will focus more on the Buddhist side of the story. So listeners, be aware: in my interview questions, I skipped most of the musical part of Tina's life because. Ah,、uh, I just don't know enough to even ask informed questions, so I ask for、um, listeners' forgiveness. Um, I'd also like to leave this important task to others who are more qualified to interview Ralph about this. So, Ralph, I'd like to start our interview with your introduction. You opened the introduction with Tina's own words on Larry King Life, an interview as part of the promotional tour of her Wildest Dreams tour. That's 1996 to 97. But then you revealed to us Tina Turner actually has two Wildest Dreams, not just one. The first, as a successful artist, is no brainer. But what's the second, the equally wild but lesser-known dream of her? Also on page six, you claim that Tina's story is fundamentally a religious story. So please tell us, tell our listeners more about her second wildest dream, and why this story is so important for not only our listeners and Tina Turner's fans, but also for scholars of Buddhism. Tina Turner's second wildest dream, right? That she. Uh, outlined for herself that she explained was to become a Buddhist teacher, and she first starts to voice this dream in、uh, interview publications at the beginning of the 1980s, and then in her first autobiography, I Tina, which was released in、uh, September of 1986, and in the epilogue to that autobiography. She says that she views herself as not yet ripe enough to teach others, but that she feels that that will be the fulfillment of her mission, right? To begin to teach others about Buddhism and about how to live. So this becomes her second wildest dream, even in the midst of rebuilding her career, and then by the middle of the eighties. And toward the latter half of the eighties, experiencing this career resurgence and this career success, where her first wildest dream to be a successful and particularly commercially commercially successful artist is coming to fruition. Right by the mid eighties, her private dancer album has been、uh, released and becomes a multi platinum selling. By the time her first autobiography is being released in 1986, in the same month, her follow-up album to that is being released and is commercially successful. She's filling arenas and stadiums around the world. So, in the midst of fulfilling her first wildest dream, she voices the second wildest dream, right, to be a Buddhist teacher. And so, I argue in the book that. We should take this seriously, right? By we, that means scholars in Buddhist studies. That means scholars、uh, of American religion and the general public that is interested in the interface between religion and popular culture. That we need to take seriously the the、uh, religious, the theological, and you might say Buddhological labors of. This 
black woman who has voiced a determination to be a Buddhist teacher. And as I show in the book, as I demonstrate in throughout the book, she is once she converts to Buddhism, she is always talking about her practice in interviews. She is always taking the available opportunity to share about her beliefs and practices. Such that when she finally turns to uh, what I call her formal turn to Buddhist teaching that takes place in 2009 and 2010 with the release of her um, first Beyond album, I argue that she had been laying the groundwork for this turn to teaching from the beginning and that we then need to read her work, read her written words, read her archive of interviews, her videos, her performances as entries into the study of American Buddhism. Awesome. So basically, we need to take her words seriously. She said she aspired to become religious, a Buddhist teacher, and we have to study her as a religious Buddhist teacher. So thank you, Rob, for clarifying these important issues for listeners. So chapter one, titled Motherless Child, is bittersweet. The chapter title, I think it takes one of her song's title. On the one hand, she was born Anna May Bullock, and she grew up in an environment that's just full of instability and dysfunction, which led her, you know, led to damage to her frontal lobe that she only got to learn much later in life. But in her youth, right, despite her undeniable talents in sports music, she was somehow convinced of her own stupidity and took pains to hide it as on page 32. Um, it just pains me to read this part. But on the other hand, she was also lucky because she had two very strong but drastically different grandmothers who passed on to her what scholars termed grandmother theology. And this grandmother theology laid the foundation of her eclectic spirituality that she kept enriching during her life. So one grandmother embodies the Black Baptist tradition and the other transmits this sudden Black religious culture. So Please, Ralph, tell us more about her childhood and the role of religion and spirituality in it. So Tina Turner was born in uh, West Tennessee, right? She was born Anna Mae Bullock in the rural community of Nutbush, which is itself a part of, Brown, of the city of Brownsville, Tennessee. And in that environment, her life was in a sense structured by the rhythms of the Black Baptist Church. She, her family attended two local churches in the area, uh, one of which I focus on in Chapter 1, that is Woodlawn uh, Missionary Baptist Church in Nutbush, Tennessee. And that's the church that primarily her family worshipped at. But it was her paternal grandmother that really, uh, as is often the case, right, led the, led the way in her family as far as um, in the institutional practice of religion goes, right? So her paternal grandmother was very strict about church attendance and uh, Black Baptist respectability in the home. And Tina Turner, uh, because of the dynamics of her family with her mother and father often separating and, and coming back together and having to move away for work opportunities, 
Tina Turner and her uh, siblings often lived with their grandparents, right, at different points throughout their life. So when Tina Turner was living with her paternal grandmother, she was being trained in the strictures of Black Baptist upbringing, right, of a Black Baptist upbringing. At the same time, when her parents moved to uh, eastern Tennessee to work uh, in a factory, she, Tina Turner and her, her sisters would go out to visit their parents. And there they started going to a Black Pentecostal church. So Tina Turner is getting then these kind of two wings of institutional African-American Christianity, right? The Black Baptist Church and Black Pentecostal Church. At the same time, though, her maternal grandmother was essentially attuned to the rhythms of the natural environment of um, of Brownsville and Haywood County West and West Tennessee. That is, her maternal grandmother was often out in nature, right? Out in the cotton fields, out in the woods surrounding their community, always looking to the sky, always humming and touching the earth. And for Tina Turner, then as a young girl, she was learning from that grandmother about this other side to Black Southern religious culture, right? That is, both parallel to and intertwined with the institutional practice of religion, right? This kind of nature-based mysticism and this attunement to dreams, signs, and visions. So these two grandmothers then, her paternal grandmother, which comes to represent for Turner uh, the kind of Black Baptist church, and her maternal grandmother, which comes to represent a kind of mystical nature-based spirituality, these two deeply influenced Tina Turner, and as I argue in the book, predisposed her in some ways to the uh, religious traditions that she later becomes involved with. Thank you, Ralph. So it's such a rich, kind of a spiritually rich childhood, both in, in, in institutional aspect of it, but intuitional aspect of it. Um, so chapter two, Becoming Tina Turner, is dark. This chapter talks about her meeting with Ike Turner, the abusive spouse who named her Tina Turner as a trademark without even consulting her at all. In the nine, um, early 1970s, Tina toured England for her song, River Deep, Mountain High. And here you tell the readers, for Tina, England, here just quote, was to be the beginning of a spiritual awakening for her. That's on page 55. Could you please share with our listeners what was this spiritual awakening, how it relates to this so-called American metaphysical religion, and how Tina began, began to construct her own religious repertoire of all sorts of tools, right, to help her find purpose and hope under unimaginable abuse, hurt, racism, and many other structural and non-structural forms of violence. In 1966, Tina Turner uh, and the Ike and Tina Turner Review traveled to 
England to promote their single uh, River Deep Mountain High and the, the album that that was on. And the song had been a, a tremendous disappointment in the American radio market, but was a major success in the uh, United Kingdom and across continental Europe. So they embark on this tour. And while in England, Tina Turner is uh, preparing to go on a television show with uh, her husband, Ike Turner, and they get into an altercation where she is then abused by Ike Turner. And so when she shows up for rehearsal, one of the women working at the TV station, you know, notices that, you know, Tina Turner is, is clearly in um, distress, right? Clearly something has occurred and wants to talk to her about it. And she tells Tina Turner that you should come and see this psychic. I know a psychic and I think you would really benefit from coming to see this person, going to see this person with me. And I think at that point in Tina Turner's life, she is uh, searching for something, or she feels, she seems to feel and displays in her writings feelings of alienation, right? Suffering from, uh, at that point, six years of abuse from her husband. And at the same time, this career success that is kind of carrying them around the United States and now Europe. So I think at that point in her life, Tina Turner is searching for some kind of, of grounding and connection and some way to make sense of the life that she is now living, right? Remembering, as I said before, that she was born in rural West Tennessee. So while she heard uh, primarily country and Western music and blues on the radio, and while she, you know, sung in church and was kind of familiar with people singing in church and at local picnics, this world of, of stardom, you know, of touring artists, commercial success, the pressures of that, and then this abusive relationship at home where she is a young woman, right, who goes essentially overnight from having one son to now taking care of four children, right? Two that she birthed and two from Ike's previous, really, Ike Turner's previous relationship. So she is a young woman. She is a mother. She is um, six years or more into this career and into this abusive relationship. And the world around her, I think, as she writes about it, is expanding, but also quite limited, you know? So when she goes to England and when she sees the psychic, the psychic tells her something that would really sustain her until she began to practice Buddhism uh, some years later. The psychic tells her that you will be among the biggest of stars and your partner will fall away like a leaf from a tree. And she holds on to that, right? She holds on to that. And I think at that point in her life, then, 
far away from Nutbush city limits, right? Far away from her two grandmothers and their uh, strict influence, but also grounding influence. The words of this psychic and the psychics that she begins to meet uh, initially around Europe, those words begin to give her something to hold on to. At the same time, she is traveling around Europe and she is experiencing different cultures and she's beginning to think of herself as not just, you know, a Southern Black woman, but someone who might have a place in other parts of the world. Um, And then, of course, this is happening at the same time as that there's this revival of interest in American, uh, African-American blues artists and, right, soul music is developing and um, R&B is in full swing. And so these musical traditions are experiencing great success in Europe. And Tina Turner is traveling in Europe at the same time. So she's having this religious awakening, right? This introduction to metaphysical religious ideas at the same time as she's having this cultural awakening. And that's what's going on for her uh, at that time. And this is giving her a way to think about, right? The civil rights movement in the United States. This is giving her a way to think about her own personal situation, right? As it's increasingly as she writes about later in her life, increasingly looking like she she won't be able to get out of the situation that she's in with this man, Ike Turner. But now she has the words of, of a psychic telling her that you will get out of it and you will do well. She has this uh, appreciation coming at her from other cultures. And I think it's no surprise later, as I write in the book, that where does she end up moving? First, to England, then to Germany, then to uh, France and Switzerland, right? All places that she went on that first tour in 1966, all places where she found a sense of spiritual and cultural awakening. Wow, thank you so much. So spiritual and cultural awakening enabled her to start telling her a totally different story about her own life. And then that aspirations at least these two actions and last two, who she become. So um, I just want to share with um, the listeners my own um, reading experiences. Even though this chapter touches upon the stormy relations between Ike Turner and Tina Turner, so your portrayal of Ike Turner is actually very, very compassionate. You hold Ike Turner accountable for the violence he inflicted upon others, especially on Tina. But at the same time, you also explain to us all the abuses and hurt that Ike Turner experienced as a black man and the odds he had to fight against, right, in the whole system. And, you know, those kind of hurt reinforce the kind of violent, abusive and controlling behaviors in him. So it's just like a, a stereotype, like hurt people, hurt people. But that's the, the vicious cycles of violence. So it's not all black and white. It's really complicated. So thank you, Ralph, for showing us the full range of humanities of both of them in this unfortunate situation. 
Um, so chapter two makes me really sad. Thankfully, the next chapter, chapter three, Tina's prayer actually gives me hope. This is the chapter shows us how Tina's earlier um, explorations of different spiritual traditions and her immediate circle of jazz musicians led her to the path of Soka Gakkai Buddhism. The title of her chapter, like Motherless Child, right, is the title of her son, made me over, but later changed to um, Tina's prayer. So this is also the time that she started to talk about we are all little gods within ourselves. That's page 92, uh, 91. And she also started to emerge from the shadow of Ike Turner, which is um, powered by a confidence in this little god in each of us. Um, for listeners unfamiliar with Buddhist um, theology, this is referring to, I see it's echoing to the mainstream Mahayana teaching of the Buddha nature that's innate in all sentient beings. So Ralph, please tell us more about her serendipitous encounters, multiple encounters with Soka Gakkai and how she started chanting this Namo Myoho Linge Ryu and how this chanting practice assisted her to make decision to leave behind this abusive relationship. Uh, thank you for sharing your impressions of, of chapter two. I, I have to say that writing chapter two was very difficult uh, for me from many, many perspectives. The first perspective was how to tell a familiar story, right? At some of the broader contours of her, the story of her relationship with Ike Turner and her tenure in the Ike and Tina Turner Review are well known, right? It has been depicted in film, on stage, written about in, T in Turner's own books and written about in other books. So how to approach it and show where religion is for her during that time, which is a kind of not a well-known part of the story. At the same time, it deals with, with themes that are quite difficult right, the kind of racism, sexism, violence, uh, abuse, kind of um, national movements occurring, right? international changes, and so on and so forth, and how to hold it all together but not lose Turner's own voice, right, uh, was, was very challenging. And it's a challenging part of her story for, for me as a researcher, um, because they're, they're clearly is a lot of, of pain and trauma there that she, as she described it. And she was forced to relive that pain and trauma every time she gave an interview and the subject matter came up and this caused uh, difficulties for her later in her life, such that towards the end of her life, she largely stopped giving interviews because of the repeated return to a subject matter that she had no interest in returning to. So here I am writing a book that is that I um, know members in her inner circle will will read and know about. And so here I am writing this book that right returns to the subject matter that's clearly so difficult. At the same time, I was interested to to highlight the fact that when she met Ike Turner, she was in many ways meeting someone who was deeply familiar to her culturally, right? Also from a similar background of her, right? Rural South, uh, raised in and around the church, this intertwining of music and church, um, but had something that she didn't have, 
patent experience that is stardom, right? Both a local stardom and this growing regional stardom that Ike Turner was experiencing at the time that they met. And for her as a young woman, as a as a high school, right? She was in her final years of high school with these kind of aspirations in her high school yearbook. She wrote under her picture, her uh, photo, entertainer, right? So this aspiration to experience a life beyond what she knew, but very few examples of what that might mean. And meeting Ike Turner, she sees a figure who is deeply familiar to her, but also has this kind of success. And eventually he takes her under his wing, but there's a dark side to that as you bring it. So I was very concerned to to dive into that um, and to show the place of that. But as I argue in the book, the religious side of that story is carried from her childhood then to 1966 and the kind of metaphysical religious ideas. And then that carries her then to the early 70s when she is introduced uh, to Soka Gakkai, Nichiren Buddhism, and its practice of chanting. As she begins to encounter uh, practitioners from that organization, right, this is happening his, at a time in the Soka Gakkai's history in the United States where they are in what they call phase two of their aggressive expansion. And in phase two of the expansion of that organization, which is taking place uh, from the end of the 1960s to the middle of the 1970s, they are on street corners, right? They, they call it the street corner shakabuku movement, right? The, the street corner uh, propagation effort where they are in urban centers all around the United States, going door to door, similar to Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, placing themselves in pu- in public spaces similar to the Hare Krishna, right? And they are p- intensely trying to propagate their message. And because of their location in urban environments, they become quite successful with uh, communities of color, particularly African American and Latinx uh, and, and Hispanic American. So Tina Turner is encountering the practice in the midst of that effort, unbeknownst to herself. So that when a a recording engineer at the uh, studio that her and Ike had talks to her about the practice, right, he is attempting to do what they're trained to do as Soka Gakkai members in the second phase of the organization. That is talk to as many people in as many places as possible about the act of chanting and the benefits it can have in a person's life. Then in Inglewood, her son, Inglewood is a suburb of uh, Los Angeles, predominantly black suburb of Los Angeles. Her youngest son also encounters someone on a street corner trying to shakabuku him, explain the practice to him, giving him juju beads, that is, prayer beads and telling him, if you chant these words, you can have whatever you want. And as an excited young kid, he goes home and tells his mother, uh, who he uh, 
in the book, I, Tina, Tina Turner's first autobiography, there is an interview with her youngest son, Ronnie Turner, in that book. And he says that he was aware of how unhappy his mother was. And he you know, would kind of sit with her sometimes and see the sadness in her face. So he finds out on a street corner that you can chant these words and become happy. So he goes home to his mother, his mother who is unhappy, and tells her, I don't know much, but I know that they say if you chant these words, you can become absolutely happy. And she, I mean, I don't, she expresses later in her life in, in other contexts her kind of skepticism with what her son is saying, but, you know, appreciating his youthful enthusiasm. But it doesn't, the message doesn't so much take hold. But then she has this third encounter with the wife of a uh, jazz musician. And this woman begins to actually explain the practice and the philosophy to her. And it begins to click. So through this series of encounters, Turner is implicated in the story of American Buddhism and the subset of that story, that is the second phase of Soka Gakkai's expansion in the United States, right? She is encountering figures who are learning about the practice through this kind of street corner propagation method. And then jazz artists, right? Her association with communities of jazz artists who are themselves practicing Buddhism, learning about uh, Eastern, quote unquote, Eastern religious ideas. Um, This is helpfully charted in books like Jason Bivens' um, Spirits Rejoice, right? This, um, and Richard Brent Turner and his work, right? This kind of interfacing with jazz artists and um, Asian religious traditions. Tina Turner is implicated in the story as well, because it's finally the wife of a jazz musician that explains the practice to her. This brings us from 1973 to then 1976, when she finally uh, leaves Ike Turner. In that period, she is developing, and and we can see this in her interviews from that time period. So in the book, in chapter three, I cite a number of um, magazine interviews that take place from about 1974 to 1976, where she displays this growing sense of self-confidence. She begins to talk about her Buddhist beliefs and practices. She begins to make attempts to explain the practice. And she even begins to to say honestly some of the struggles in her relationship with Ike Turner. So that then when she leaves Ike Turner in 1976, July 1976, in Dallas, Texas, I hope that the reader of the book, of my book, can see this trajectory, right, that begins in 1976 and this uh, and metaphysical religious ideas and encounters with psychics, then being introduced to Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhism in Los Angeles, right, 
and through jazz musicians and and they're the spouses of jazz musicians to this growing sense of confidence and belief in herself and her own potential that then uh, inspires her leaving Ike Turner. Yeah, the story came just through just very strongly. Then her own personal spiritual journey so kind of um, intricately interconnected with the involvement of American metaphysical religion, so-called Gakai being part of this whole big story. So she's like the one of the jewels in the Indra's net. It's all interconnected, but somehow you can use this one spiritual journey to highlight the change and then... Um, the complex complexity of the whole um, religious landscape. So many thanks, Ralph. After she left Ike, life was hard for months. Right here, you wrote, right? She had no money, no home, tons of bills to pay, including the court's lawsuit papers because, you know, the, of the canceled shows that Ike Turner booked but refused to cancel in time. Meanwhile, Ike Turner continued to harass her, stalk her, possibly set her friends' houses on fire, fed shots into her, like shots into various residences, temporary residences. Um, also, I think burned a few cars. I can't exactly remember the details. So to save her own life, November 1977, no, November 1977, yes, Tina dropped all her divorce claims and worked out this marriage with literally just her own name, Tina Turner. That's on page 122. So this is chapter four, narrates her journey of becoming Tina. And now is Tina, the solo artist, no longer owned by someone else. And this is simultaneously a spiritual journey because it's a past full of obstacles and difficulties. And again, here you show Tina draw from her rich religious repertoire to navigate these stormy waters. Personally, I want to focus on two aspects, but you can choose to talk about other things. The first, her use of karma as a framework to understand both the difficulties in her own relationships with Ike, that's um, page 112 to 117, and the societal-wide issues like racial karma, um, page 132 to 33. And the second one is his Buddhist blueprint that's informed by Soka Gakkai's sociological notion of human revolution. But the question itself was more explicitly posed to her by Wayne Sauter, that's another Soka Gakkai practitioner, and I think is also a musician, that, you know, he asked her for a mission statement for her life that's on page 125. So please share, share with our listeners how Tina deployed all this, um, you know, his spiritual repertoires, especially two Buddhist notions, to become the Tina we know today. For Tina Turner, as I argue in the book, fundamentally, karma is context. Right. So for those of us in, in Buddhist studies, right, the study of, um, you know, and broader um, Asian religious traditions and ideas, we know that karma comes from the Sanskrit uh, word, karman, which means action. So then broadening that karma is action and the result or the, the consequence of action. Right. And particularly for Buddhist, karma is intentional action of body, speech, and mind. And the result 
of those actions. And Turner learns about this from the Soka Gakkai community that she practiced in in West Los Angeles um, that was also the, the group that Wayne Shorter was in, also the group that Herbie Hancock was in, right, two jazz musicians and others. But for Turner, karma most significantly becomes context, right? A way of accounting for experiences in this life, right, in her current life, by making reference to patterns of action and possible patterns of action in her previous lives. And then specifically in Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhism, drawing upon, uh, as that tradition does, on the writings of Nichiren, the 13th century uh, Japanese Tendai monk, karma and teachings about karma are most significantly about transformation and the transformation of karma, such that as Turner comes to understand it, karma and the transformation of karma comes to mean the transformation of her own context. This then dovetails with the Soka Gakkai um, notion, which is really a doctrinal principle in Soka Gakkai, that is termed human revolution, right? And this was formulated by the second president of Soka Gakkai, a man named uh, Jose Tora, who was uh, born in 1900 and died in, in the year 1900, died in 1958. And he was the second president of the Soka Gakkai in Japan and was responsible for more clearly outlining the religious doctrines of the organization. The organization began as an educational society with the original title Soka Kyoku Gakkai, right? The Society for Value Creating Educational Pedagogy. But once the first president of the organization died in prison uh, and the second president of the organization, so they told it, emerged from prison, he reformulated the organization and he dropped Kyo, uh, Kyoiko from the title. And so the title of the organization just became Soka Gakkai. And it became from that moment forward uh, a more primarily a religious body. Um, under the third president of that organization, the activities expanded. But under Jose Toda's tenure as president, the religious foundations of the organization were solidified. And he came up with the expression human revolution as a modern way of referring to the attainment of Buddhahood and one's present form, right, and one's uh, current life. So these two ideas, karma, and the transformation of karma and human revolution, that is the attainment of Buddhahood, or really in that tradition, the revelation of Buddhahood from inside of oneself come together. And in, for Turner, the transformation of karma becomes the way to reveal one's own highest potential. And this fusion for her, uh, as I think her writings and her interviews show, this fusion for her is what 
enables her to finally understand what exactly, right, the why. And it's almost a, almost a question of theodicy, right? Of course, theodicy comes out of, of Christianity and the idea of, right, how do we account for evil and suffering when we have a just, all-powerful, um, compassionate, even, God, right, supreme God. Now, of course, that idea doesn't obtain in Buddhism. That idea doesn't hold in Buddhism. But there's still this question for Turner. Why, why do I have to, why do I, this young woman from you know, who watched my watched my parents fight and separate, uh, the the kind of racism and sexism that and classism that is endemic in the in American society, but also in then the music business and this personally violent and abusive relationship. Why? And throughout in many interviews, Turner asked aloud that very question: Why? Now, what did I do to deserve this, to make this so? Karma, the idea of karma and the transformation of karma and human revolution gave her, in the Soka Gakkai Buddhist tradition, gave her a way to understand the why and the how of moving forward. But as I write in the book, another figure enters the picture. That is the psychic Carol Dreyer. And this psychic for Turner, um, who specialized in past life, uh, so in a, in a form of psychic um, technology called soul reading. So she was a soul reader and a past life reader. So if Soka Gakkai gave Turner um, language and a kind of doctrinal understanding of karma as context. I think Carol Dreyer gave her um, kind of practical soul-reading technology experience. Now, in re- of course, one can, can debate the actual contours of that. But as a scholar of religion, what I was most interested in is what was at stake in Turner's engagement with the idea of karma, the doctrinal principle of human revolution, and her interactions with the psychic Carol Dreyer, right? As an object of study, what what was at stake there? What was going on there? And as I write in the book, what was going on there is Turner's need to have a context and language for understanding her experiences to that point in her life. Yes, it's just like, thank you so much for such a beautiful explanation of how karma and um, kind of the human revolution just comes together for Tina. I mean, as a scholar of Chinese Buddhism, I know there's this rule of studying Buddhism. It's just like rule number one, because it's not true. Therefore, it's more important because what's more important is actually what works and why that works for this particular person at this moment. Um, so thank you so much for such a deep and rich look into her spiritual journey. 
Um, I just like to share with our listeners my own reading of this experience of chapter four, even though the karmic uh, reincarnation story, you know, right by the psychic, um, whose name I already forgot. Um, it's about Egyptians, uh, queen and kings, but you know, those you can, you know, it, it, you cannot accept it as a secular reader as truth, but just think about karma as context and karma as transformation of your own context, right? When that Tina, right, it helped her to um, reframe her difficult relationships with Ike in terms of her past life stories. So when I read that, I immediately think of another early Buddhist nuns that's recorded in Terigata. Her name is Isidasi, and she was badly abused by her husband, in-laws, and her own father. But then she met a Buddhist nun called Jina Datta, who was well-versed in monastic laws and who happened to beg for arms at Isidasi's father's home. And, you know, when Isidasi saw her, she just decided, I'm going to join the Sangha. Near seven days afterwards, after she joined the Sangha, she gained the three knowledge that's a marker to achieve our hardship. And she got to remember her past seven lives in her gata. She shared her own past fault, the ensuing karmic retribution. So this karmic framing of personal responsibility and relational accountability has helped numerous women to overcome their difficulties in life and to gain spiritual resilience despite the structural and non-structural violences against them. So for me, Tina's story is just one among a long stream of female Buddhist ancestors who similarly beat the impossible odds and leave with us inspirations and encouragements. Um, in the interest of time, let's move on to chapter five, Wildest Dreams. This chapter is super long. It offers a very detailed picture of how Tina's two wildest dreams are finally interwoven in her daily life as a commercially successful, internationally renowned performer. So particularly moving for me are two points. The first, is, the first is how Buddhist ideals helped her break through the racist and sexist discriminations. For example, she used the idea of what you call a musical bodhisattva that's on page 147. That's her vow to create value in society by inspiring hope and peace through their own artistic careers page 149. And she also made her public announcement for her second dream on October 11th, 1980. Um, here you just quote her saying that I'm going to focus on propagating Buddhism. I think that's going to be my message. That's why I'm here. And I think that's why I'm going to be as powerful as I am. I'm getting their attention now. And then when I'm ready, they'll listen and they'll hear. The quote is on page 160. So that's the first point. And the second point is when she described herself as a Buddhist Baptist, a both-and kind of spirituality that we see through her own life. This kind of both-and approach, right, that includes everything that she's ever made spiritual connection with. So please tell us, tell our listeners more about Tina as the musical Bodhisattva and Tina as the Buddhist Baptist. So Turner uh, used the expression musical bodhisattva uh, in, in regards to a uh, Soka Gakkai Buddhist festival that she was at in 1982 with Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Tina Turner and other, uh, um, Tina Turner herself was there with Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and others. And they vowed at that, they made a vow at that festival 
to be uh, musical bodhisattvas, right? To use their music to uh, uplift and inspire others. But this understanding, I think, goes back to, uh, again, as I mentioned, the, the second president of Soka Gakkai, Jose Toda, right? When he was in prison, he had two realizations, right? His first realization was that he uh, he had an insight into emptiness as he understood it, right? Based on a passage in uh, the sutra that that opens, that serves in a sense as the introduction to the Lotus Sutra. That was the first insight, and then he he came to the understanding within that that the Buddha is, as he defined it, life force. Um, and so he develops this kind of life force philosophy. But then his second realization is that he himself was a bodhisattva of the earth. That's this image that comes out of the Lotus Sutra, where this kind of the earth opens up and this large number of bodhisattvas, uh, that is beings who have the orientation towards awakening, you might say. And they kind of burst forth and they emerge from the earth, right? Um, this in this chapter is going to emerging from the earth. And they're present at this assembly of the Lotus Sutra that's taking place uh, on and mystically above Holy Eagle Peak, so to speak. Right, this is the uh, religious mythology. But Jose Toda in prison, his second uh, realization is he has a, a, a vision of himself as amongst that group. And he imparts that vision to his uh, followers in the Sopadaka. So this idea then has this long trajectory in Sopadaka and Nichiren Buddhist history, right? This perception of oneself as one of these bodhisattvas and particularly a bodhisattva of the earth that has appeared in this world, uh, the difficult world in, in Buddhist cosmology, this world is called the Saha world, right? The, the world of difficulty or endurance. And these bodhisattvas of the earth emerge into this difficult world to propagate the teachings. So this idea has a long trajectory in Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist history, such that in, when in 1982, Tina Turner makes this vow alongside her um, religious colleagues, they're participating in this Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist history of uh, what I would argue is a religio-racial identity, right? reimagining themselves and their place both in sacred time and in historical time. She is drawing on that. At the same time, she names herself as Buddhist Baptist. Uh, so that that's not at the same time as, as making the vow. The vow was made in 1992, and then about 11 years later, she kind of identifies herself as Buddhist Baptist as a way to to explain how she relates her earlier religious training in the Black Baptist Church, uh, primarily, to her 
Buddhist identity. And this highlights something that uh, Rima Vesely Flod has discussed in the book Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition. That is, for many African-American Buddhists, they do not, they often do not completely discard their earlier religious formation and training. They often incorporate that training into their practice of Buddhism. And we see this with Tina Turner in her usage, uh, her continued usage of the language of uh, African-American Christianity, right? And some of the understandings that come out of that, even as she teaches and promotes Buddhism, right? So when we look at a figure like Tina Turner as a Black Buddhist teacher, right, and we attend to the Black portion of this, right, her identity as a Black woman, then we have to look at what formed that identity, right? What ideas, what practices, what um, discourses shape that identity? And what discourses shape her as a Buddhist woman and then as a Black Buddhist teacher. So in chapter five, what I'm what I'm trying to do there is to pull these threads together and show how Turner fuses that uh, this idea of being a musical bodhisattva, this in a sense hybrid religious identity of being Buddhist Baptist, how she fuses that into her um, wildest dream, the second wildest dream to be a Buddhist teacher. Wow, thank you so much. This is such a rich kind of um, chapter full of fascinating kind of uh, details, surprising insights in such a rich kind of religious spiritual life. And fusion, I feel like, is really the thing because she really just draws from everything that she had a karmic connection with and then to form it in her own way. So chapter six, titled Beyond and Beyond, is all about Tina now the religious teacher, the black Buddhist teacher. And the things she did after she retired from the commercial music scene and her participation in the making of the four spiritual albums called uh, Beyond is kind of a interreligious dialogue, but done in a musical way. And at the same time, around the same time, she also wrote her memoir. Um, I want to focus on her memoir, Happiness Becomes You, a guide to change, changing your life for good. Um, so here you'll quote Wesley Flat, a summary of this book. Okay, you will just um, read the quote. This is the book that honors the long, slow process of black people quieting their thoughts, diving into their own interior lives, and healing the fractures that have widened with intergenerational trauma and social degradation. That's on page 214. So to give listeners a taste of this, what this long, slow process is about, at least for Tina, I want to focus on your description on the fifth chapter of Happiness Becomes You. This chapter is titled Changing Poison to Medicine. It's a particularly Soka Gakkai doctrine attributed to the 2nd, 3rd century Madhyamaka philosopher Nagarjuna, 
But as a Chinese reader, I'm 100% sure medieval Chinese philosophers has amply embellished this notion of transforming poison into medicine and broaden its use. But for the purpose of this book, right, please tell us how Tina, Tina herself right, further developed this idea, so ancient, that has like such a long history, and then enriched this philosophy of life right, with her own lived experiences, so much so that her rendition make this ancient idea much more relevant and relatable to contemporary Americans. Tell us more. Yes, uh, I just want to offer a brief clarification that that uh, Vesely, Rima Vesely Flod's quote is a summary of her own book, and then I engage that summary of of uh, Vesely Flod's book to discuss Tina Turner's memoir, Happiness Becomes You. Um, but with this idea of changing poison to medicine, that is drawn. Uh, essentially from a, 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 a single line in the Dajer uh, Dulun that says um, that the Buddha is like a physician that is capable of, of turning poison into medicine. Right From that line, uh, the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition you know, has woven a, an entire uh, network of association and associated ideas that kind of seeks to put that idea into a kind of modern and contemporary idiom. Um, and Tina Turner names that as the theme of, of her life, right? She says this in her memoir, Happiness Becomes You. She said it uh, on stage the final time that she ever appeared in um, in the United States. And that was also one of the last times that she physically appeared in public anyway, right? She named that as the kind of summarizing theme of her life. So poison comes to then represent um, mistakes, abuse, destruction, violence, right? The kind of the suffering of life, where medicine then comes to represent the um, transformation of that, where suffering is understood not as redemptive, but as a fact of life, and that you can triumph not in spite of your suffering, but because of it, right? That's how the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition understands changing poison into medicine. And for Tina Turner, then, this means that by telling her story in three memoirs, countless interviews, a film, a uh, stage musical, and various other media, by telling her story in often graphic detail, that that is the catalyst for triumph, right? Both her own and others. And that brings us back to the idea of, of the Bodhisattva side of the musical Bodhisattva, right? Uh, this orientation towards and this concern to use your insights, your experiences, and so on and so forth for the uplift of others, right? 
And I think Turner's memoir, Happiness Becomes You, has to be read in that context, right? That it it is it belongs to the genre of Soka Gakkai literature that is concerned with sharing the sharing of personal experiences, both in um, live formats, that is in the Soka Gakkai kind of discussion meetings, but also in written form in Soka Gakkai publications, right? Um, Turner's memoir, Happiness Becomes You, functions much like those ex- the experiences section of Soka Gakkai publications, where you tell your story, uh, sometimes, again, in, in graphic detail of, you know, some suffering, the transformation of that suffering through Buddhist practice, and your hope for what telling that story will do for someone else. So there's this three-part movement that Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist experiences follow. And her memoir belongs to that genre, right? That's essentially what I'm arguing in chapter six. And this hinges upon the notion of changing poison into medicine, right? The transformation of your own experiences into the kind of fuel and the propulsion forward towards your own awakening and the awakening of another. No, and that's in Turner's mature spiritual teachings, and I consider her mature spiritual teachings to commence in 2009 with the, the first Beyond album and to culminate in uh, with the 2020 release of her memoir, Happiness Becomes You, right? And those in that mature body of, of um, religious reflection and teaching Turner highlights changing poison into medicine as the doctrinal principle that represents her own story and thus her own teachings. Wow, thank you so much for clarifying this whole doctrinal tradition, the genre of it. And it's just, I think about it, it's a very um, engaging genre because it invites you to share your own experiences. In that way, it just enriches the whole tradition continuously. It's open-ended. So, Ralph, um, we've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here but you'd like to highlight for the listeners and readers? Um, I know I speak the epilogue, but that's a sad epilogue. Talk about her sons, um, which are very difficult for me to process. But anything else that can enrich the readers and listeners' experiences about reading or listening of, of interviews, especially her music aspect that I totally skipped because of my own ignorance? Turner, I think the, the thing that I want to flag and highlight for readers and for listeners is that first to understand Turner as a Black Buddhist teacher is to locate her in the tradition to which she belonged, the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition, and the history of that tradition in the United States, a history which begins, uh, the, the history of Nichiren Buddhism and the United States goes back to the um, the 19th century, but the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition 
goes back to the 50s, right? So it's a kind of post-war religious uh, group that comes to the United States. Turner is located in that tradition. And as such, that tradition understands that there is a oneness in their kind of thinking, right? And their doctrine. There is a oneness between daily life and one's religious practice and religious reflections, such that it's not just that that daily life and experience is the staging ground or the proving ground for Buddhist doctrine, it's that daily life is Buddhist practice and doctrine. And thus for Turner, her daily life right, was being a, a musician, an artist, a figure of popular culture, a figure within popular culture. That to her is Buddhist practice, right? Is Buddhist teaching and preaching, such that when you see her on stage, you are seeing Buddhism live. When you see her in an interview, you are being taught Buddhism. When you read her works and listen to her albums, you are listening to Buddhist instruction, right? And this is a this is a fundamental understanding in the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition to which she belonged. And so in the right, that's that's Turner as a as black Buddhist teacher. But as an as a figure in American religious history and the history of Buddhism in the West, then Turner represents and becomes representative of the place of Black Buddhist teachers in the history and historiography of uh, the study of Buddhism in the West. And so we need to look at both dimensions, right? The specificity of the specificity of her as a Black Buddhist teacher and the place of Black Buddhist teachers in the historical study of Buddhism in the West and American Buddhism specifically. It is my argument and my contention with this book that doing that will bring to the fore as of yet unknown or little studied voices that are also a part of this story. And if we broaden beyond Buddhism, Right, we can talk about other uh, Black women artists who are also religious teachers. Right, of course, probably famously Alice Coltrane might be an example. Right, so it is my contention with this book that attention to to the example and the labors, the religious labors of Tina Turner, will reveal as of yet unknown or little studied voices. In the epilogue, right, I have to address and I address the kind of difficult story of of Turner's last 20 years, that the last 20 years of her life that saw the death of her two sons, uh, her own almost relentless battle with illness, you know, first a stroke in 2013, then vertigo, then intestinal cancer, then 
kidney disease and ultimately kidney failure and ultimately multiple organ failure. Um, and so kind of this, this succession of struggles. But in her tradition, right, the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition, that too is life and Buddhist practice. And so how she talked about those experiences and how she uh, presented herself as going through them also becomes a part of the instruction, right? Her willingness to accept uh, the decisions of her eldest son that that led to the ending of his life, her um, composure in the face of, of the death of her youngest son, um, her willingness to, if need be, um, relinquish this life. You know, if her if her various illnesses had progressed to the point of no return, then her willingness to face her own uh, departure from this world. All of this becomes a part of her teaching as a Black Buddhist woman. And this then reveals uh, much in the story of many African-American Buddhists who have their own tales of, of suffering and triumph, both personal and uh, socioculturally. So I hope that that listeners will and readers of the book will walk away curious about other figures. And as you so helpfully did, Jessica, when we began this interview, right, that Turner exists in a long line of Buddhist women who have told their stories or about whom other people have told stories with the um, possible intention of helping another. Thank you, Ralph. So this wisdom, all aspiring PhD students and studies, uh, uh, scholars of, aspiring scholars of Buddhist studies should pay attention. They're just like a vast terrain of religious teachers, just like Tina throughout history that we haven't even paid attention to yet. So thank you so much for writing this book. Um, before we part our ways, I just want to ask one last traditional New Books Network question. What are you working now? What keeps you busy? I am working on uh, three main projects at the moment. That is the churning of my dissertation, which is titled The Preachers of the Great Way. Uh, the Dharmaponika and Mahayana Buddhist Sutras. I am working on turning that into what will be my second book. I am working on a translation uh, of a text primarily from Tibetan uh, for the 84,000 project. That, that text is called the Sustitta Deva Putra Paripricha, the questions of the god Sustitta. Um, and I'm also uh, in the beginning stages of of a book on the uh, SGI USA, um, right? That grows out of my work on Tina Turner. You are just so productive. <laughs> it's hard to keep track, um, keep up with you. But I'm looking forward to interview you for your future books. But thank you again. 
for writing this amazing book, for sharing with us so many insights that we have to process further. And um, we should just review those questions, interviews, and read your book periodically. Um, before we leave, I just want to <clears throat> give a re reminder for listeners. Um, you can find all the references to Theragata's early Buddhist nuns and, um, and other things that we mentioned in the blog post blog post of this episode. So many thanks for our listeners for your time and presence. And thank you, Ralph. Thank you.